Welcome to three. I'm Gil Gross, joined as always by Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. We are heading into Rome, ultimately heading into Roland Garros, and Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal are both in very interesting positions right now. Carlos Alcaraz was champion in Madrid. Uh, we may touch on that as well. Uh, just recapping a tournament that, of course, Nadal and Djokovic did not participate in. Let's start with Novak because the last time we spoke, he was still in Banja Luka. It was after his win over Luka Vanash prior to his loss uh, against Dusan Lajevic. But e even more notable, likely, than, than the Lajevic loss was his withdrawal from Madrid. And Amy, I'm curious what your read on that was because I'm just not convinced it was the elbow. Based on what we saw in Banja Luka, I... I don't think it should be assumed that it was the elbow. I think it might have uh, been about, you know, getting back to form and, and fitness and, and training and trying to build up your confidence. But it's kind of an unconventional move, if so. Well, we've on this show talked many, many times about how Madrid is the outlier of the clay court tournaments because of the altitude. So if you're going to play yourself back into form, um, the bounces are going to be a little bit different there. Um, top spin is going to be weaponized there. It's really going to jump. So if there were any little injury or anything bothering him at all, that might not have been the ideal tournament to come back and play yourself into form. So it was a strategic decision, possibly. And um, he knows what he's doing. So um, I, I did read somewhere that the sleeve has come off in practice. So yeah. I think it's, it's good signs and good sense. Yeah, and it, and it came off in Banja Luka. Uh, Joel, just tracking, and I know you've done a lot of this with Nadal uh, this year, just looking at, okay, what have his lead-ups to Roland Garros typically been like? For Djokovic... This was kind of the deviation for me because he hasn't played well in Monte Carlo in in over three years. He hasn't played well the week after Monte Carlo in over three years. Even the year he made the final, he was not looking great uh, of of Belgrade, which was which was last year. But he's always kind of had his his okay, if not back to a hundred, almost back to one hundred at Madrid, and this year. Obviously, he didn't even feel well enough to play it. Yeah, I think Novak is, these last few years, thinking a lot about how he manages his time and his energy. And there are these, these exiles he's taken because of some of his choices around uh, vaccination and other things that, um, how he manages his time and energy. He's going to be 36 this month. So where he plays, how he competes, and he's as, obviously as fit and as anyone probably has ever played the game, but still he wants to just manage things. Right. So I think, I think Rome is going to be fine for him. Assuming he gets probably, let's say three matches, maybe more. I mean, he's won the tournament six times and he won it last year. So I don't know. I just, it's, it is interesting. It is interesting. His whole, his whole management of time and energy and what makes him feel in the right place. And these guys like him and Adal and Federer's this way too, these guys who've won so many majors, They've been taking the whole training fitness thing. It's a whole new levels that the game's never seen before. So I don't know. We'll see. You have the two-week Masters thing in play now, which is new this year when it comes to Madrid and Rome. 
I, I do think that helps Djokovic in this case uh, and also throws off kind of the perception of how long he has. Because normally if you pull out of Madrid, it was, oh, there's three weeks until Roland Garros and you're pulling out of a tournament. Now there's three weeks until Roland Garros at the start of Rome. So the whole timing of it is different. But also, uh, I think best of three matches, day off, 96 draw, just the format. I, I do think it's actually going to be beneficial for Djokovic in trying to build himself up instead of this one-week match every day kind of craziness. Well, it kind of spaces its way in. And for Novak with the 96 draw, he gets a buy, so he's starting at 64. So he's starting a 64-player tournament in his mind that – um, other guys have played, so we kind of phase in, get a little more comfortable with the grounds. There's something that'll be interesting as the years go on. We were talking about this earlier, Gil, about how the whole managing of the 96 draw, how you go about doing that. And it's two out of three. So it's not it's not a two-week 128 slam with best of five. So um, I, I think it's beneficial for the players that have a lot of money and resources because they can rent their house, which Djokovic typically does. They get there early. I saw that he's already sparring with Sinner. Um, settles in. He's comfortable. He's got friends in all these large world cities. He doesn't have to stress about the cost of putting up his agent, manager, coach, you know, physio, all that, because... He's, he's fluid. He's, he's got a lot of cash. Now, if you're a lower-ranked player or a mid-ranked player, it, these types of situations might get stressful, like you're staying in a hotel, you're putting up other people in a hotel. But for Novak, I think he's comfortable and he gets a chance to settle in and he develops a rhythm and he's like, okay, we're going to be here two weeks, you know, I'm good. Um, so I think just from a nuts and bolts perspective, it probably does benefit him. Well, it's like a two-week duration, like a slam, except it's not three out of five. You've got to buy into 64. Yeah, it's a it's a tidy kind of event that they can manage. I mean, it's it's uh, yeah, it's and it's different. I mean, that's what the um uh, Miami and Indian Wells were that with the 96, and and now we have uh, this in Madrid and Rome. There are more weeks on the road now, so that's a great point, Amy, about the finances of players because the the more time you're spending trap or in hotels on the road, the higher costs are, and that is a problem for some. Won't be a problem uh, for Novak, but also I, I think there's some mental health stuff at play, which Djokovic will be very, very aware of, as he always is. He's in tune with his emotions uh, and and his mental health, and I, I'm a little bit worried about about the tour if we're going to spend instead of 85% or I'll say 80% of the year on the road, if that ticks up to 93% of the year on the road. Uh, and I, I know those might not be exact percentages. Uh, how does that change things because of these longer events? It, it will keep players away from home more, which is insane because they're, they're always, they're already away from, from home a lot. Uh, another thing, let's get to the draw. Obviously, in the 96 draw, more lower-ranked players do qualify and gain entry into the tournament, which was very relevant last week with Jan Lennart Struff. Uh, our favorite. To... Yes, our, our, our guy. I was our, our guy, Prototypical mid-range player that we want to boost as opposed to the sub-200 level player. Yeah, yeah the big break, that was a big breakthrough. That was a great week. 
ultimate lucky loser. And then he, I wrote about it, I called it the James Bond movie. You only live twice. He, he gets a lucky loser and then he beats the guy who beat him in the qualifying. Fabulous. Incredible. I've seen it many times. At, we all have, but never in a Masters 1000 semifinal with the rematch between the qualifier and the lucky loser uh, who lost to the qualifier. Incredible. Uh, so, yeah, we're happy for Struffy. We've always talked highly of him. Uh, Djokovic will get uh, the winner of Luca Van Asch, who he played in Banja Luka, and Tomas Martin Echeverry. Echeverry's uh, had, a, had a really good clay court season. Van Asch is the only teenager now, now that Alcaraz has turned 20, Van Asch is the only teenager in the top 100. But compared to what some of those 56 draws used to offer, uh, it's it's as good as it's going to get. Uh, well, it could be a little better. I'm not, I don't want to say that it's as good as it's going to get, but it's not, it's not as bad as it often would be with these, with the loaded 56 format. So that's another thing. Uh, we also have Grigor Dimitrov. Uh, he's the closest seed with Djokovic. And then all the way on the bottom, the perspective quarterfinal. But you're forgetting, Joe, uh, Gil, you're forgetting, uh, Warenka is in there and he could easily beat Dimitrov, right? He could, and uh, Vavrinka has a Vashka first. Vavrinka should beat a Vashka on clay, I believe, and then Dimitrov Stan w will would be a lot of fun. You know, the the biggest thing with Stan, I think, recently is he. I I I would hate to play him in the first round. I would hate to play him in the second round. Then I think his body starts to go on him. Yeah, I just think it it would be like you know old timers day or old rivalry day it, it could be fun i i think the two of them would really enjoy playing each other you're um talking about stan you know, and as novak. to the outcome go ahead joel you're talking about stan and novak that's right yes yes, yes. i agree of course I, absolutely they would enjoy it absolutely yeah and the fans would too it would it would be i mean rightly so we think so fondly of the matches, particularly at majors that Novak and Stan have played. Some of the best matches of the decade were, were Djokovic and, and Vavrinka. The way they matched up against each other was, and hopefully will still be, uh, really, really fruitful. Um, you have Runa. He's the, the seed opposite Djokovic, the number seven. So that's the perspective quarterfinal if the seeds hold and then a lot of guys trying to get something going in here who who are dangerous but have had their struggles cam nori since the uh since the golden swing hasn't really had a great result uh felix was injured and he's still trying to find his footing corda had a an even more severe injury uh compared to faa took a tough loss last week in his in his first match back and then you have uh Ketsmanovic as well. Also, Alex Dimonor is uh, the 17th seed. So those are all the seeds in the quarter. Joel, what do you make of that that group of of names in there? I'm excited to see Korda continue playing. I really like watching the way he plays. But when I think of these players, you start to see how long the tennis year is, and it's already May. I mean, I think you could you wonder where where's the point of uh, maybe of exhaustion going to be for some of these people. Does it come early in the year? A guy like Nori, who I think is fantastic, but wow, a lot of energy he put into South America to become better on clay. So obviously do, in hopes of doing well at Roland Garros, will that mean he has enough or did he spend all that capital in his quest to do well on clay? And then of course, and then after that, a guy like Nori has semifinal Wimbledon points to defend. So he's, there's just a lot of, uh, 
a lot of really good players. Um, I think when we're talking about these 96, it'd be interesting to do some kind of economic playing schedule. Like if you're 60 to 90, these 96 draws are really neat to create opportunities to grab points. But if you're 20 to 60, it's a lot of labor and you're trying to peak for a slam. You know what I mean? So how do you manage your time? And I wonder how the players, what the players are going to be thinking about the mandatory entry in these Masters Thousands. You know, three three clay court Masters 1000s before Roland Garros, Monte Carlo, Madrid, Rome. Forget the Novak aspect who can manage his schedule in a certain kind of way, but the other players and how they, their whole energy thing. I, I don't know. It's It's really complicated. I think it's really complicated because they want to be, you want to just be just sharp enough for Paris, but not overcooked. Yeah, absolutely. And you do get the days off. So it's different instead of going back to back weeks where potentially you're playing almost every day, especially if you go, you go deep in both. That's obviously a, a huge grind. And this is a totally different rhythm. I'm not sure exactly how players are going to feel about about the physical aspect of it. it. It might be more restful than how it was before. But I don't think, I think me mentally is where I think it's not. Well, the long lead up, there's no cycle longer, no pre-slam cycle really longer than the pre-Roland Garros thing, which is good and bad all at once for a player. It'd be interesting to talk to a lot of players. How many matches between, let's say, the start of it, even in Houston, and in rolling how many matches is just right? Six, 10, 15? How many, how many do you want to have? How many sets? How many tournament well, matches? What's been just right for Rafael? 25? <laughs> well, that's right. Well, there you go. So he raised the bar in a certain kind of way, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, what would be success for Djokovic at this tournament? Rome has been his best clay court event of his career his uh overall record is 64 wins 10 losses 86 percent win percentage uh the last time he's lost before the semis was 2013. so the consistency at this event i would venture i haven't compared it you know to every event i would venture to say it's been the most consistent event on his entire calendar has been rome and but but now he comes in having not really had a result over the course of the clay court season. It's very very interesting. What would be success for for Novak, Amy, in your opinion? Interesting question. I think making the quarterfinals and playing Runa in the quarterfinals, and and having a really good high quality three set match there. Uh, win or lose, you know, really be tested and, and get into that tense, tight uh, match shape against a young uh, emerging rival. Um, and I do think that Runa has the potential to uh, glide through his end of this quarter because if you think about it, he's had a pretty doggone good clay season. I think he was in the finals of Monte Carlo where Rublev beat him. He then won the next week in Germany, and then he lost in Madrid to the Spanish guy, ADF, in a weird match, like late night, super close, three sets, razor thin, wild atmosphere. Um, that match could have gone either way. 
So he'll, he then took the rest of the week off or two weeks, however long that was, 10 days. Um, I think he'll probably be in pretty good stead. So if Djokovic can make it to that quarterfinal and play Runa, I deem Rome a success. <laughs> Novak is ready for Roland Garros. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I like that. I think that's a great description, Amy. And, I th- and, then, and then if it's further in Rome, that's bonus that's bonus too, but that's, that's several matches that's he's in the, in the thick of things. And, and yeah, and he's, you know, he knows his deal well enough to know, okay, all good. Of course he'd like to win it too, but I think that's a good, that's a good pinnacle. Yeah. I think, I think that's great. Uh, I, I see where you're coming from. I agree. I think about the Alcaraz match in, in Madrid last year, almost he didn't win it, but if you can, I play- was on another podcast. I have to interrupt you, Gil. I was on another podcast, and um, th- that match was brought up. And I said, uh, Gil Gross always brings up that match on our show. Granted, it was a great match. It was one of the matches of the year, but that was like for some reason that came up, and and then you just brought it up again. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that what maybe if they play again, I, I'll get to stop talking about it. Yeah. But yeah. but that that was a exactly what what you were saying. Novak didn't win that match, but okay, you play a top player, you entrench yourself in battle with that top player, and kind of go blow for blow for three hours. Uh, you definitely get something from that, and you get kind of that I'm back uh, feel. So I'm I'm with you. Uh, quarterfinal, awesome epic against Runa. I, I feel like he would feel even if he lost. All right, I have a couple of gears left and I'm ready to I'm ready to do this in Paris. So I like that. Let's go to Rafa. Um he has withdrawn from Rome. This was uh last week. So, he will go into Paris unless and I know there's tournaments before. I don't think we feel like it would make any sense for him to play a, a Geneva or a I don't know if it's Strasbourg or, or what what the other tournament is the week Leon. before. Leon, Leon, thank you, Joel. Uh, that I don't think that would make any sense. So my assumption is that if he plays in Paris, it's cold turkey. Yeah, it seems sort of seems that way. And I think I wrote this about Nadal. I think his sense of what it means to be prepared is I need to have done some homework. I mean, in other words, I don't like predictions, counting people in or out, but. I'm not leaning towards thinking that he may even play Roland Garros if he hasn't put in, gotten match play. If he hasn't gotten match play, because that's part of what he deems. Yeah, I'm ready to go. I've played matches. I'm not, I, it's not, it, that's like, I, I wonder if he thinks, am I even worthy of competing in front of all of you and my opponents in the whole game if I haven't played some prior matches? It'd be great. Of course, it'd be great to see him there, but I'm really, I'm concerned about that. Joel, you often bring up how, and it's a great point, how Nadal is a homework guy. He likes to do his homework, and that's how he feels ready. But if there's another competing factor within Nadal, it's that he loves to play. He loves to compete. I mean, absolutely loves it. So if the hip is ready, and that's a big if, you have these competing factors have not done my homework. I don't have my matches in. I love to compete. I love this tournament. You know, what will win out? 
Um, I, I'm just not sure about the hip yet. I, I don't know that I agree with you. I think there is a possibility that he skips this tournament, skips Wimbledon, because you don't want your first match back to be on a slippery grass season. Um, and and then comes back in the U.S. hard court season. But, um, you know, the guy loves to compete, and, and uh, I know he uh, doesn't want to let himself down, and he doesn't want to let the tournament down and the fans. Yeah, there, there's so much at play. I mean, I, I don't know, because he's never been in this situation before, maybe he thinks it's honorable enough to just give it his all, and mm -hmm. that, that that is enough. Um, then you have the question of how concerned is he or, or what are his plans long-term? You know it's in his head. So the the R word, the retirement thing, is that playing into how he's looking at, at this event at all? It, it very well could be. And that shouldn't be taboo because 365 days ago, Rafa Nadal was openly talking about not knowing if he was going to be able to continue because of the the foot thing. And retirement was certainly on his mind as he went through Roland Garros and then happened to win it last year. It's so it's such an interesting, interesting uh, decision that he has to make. But then the other conversation is, does he have any chance to win it? You know, because we're talking about if he's going to play it. And then the second thing is, can he win it? And and it puts us in a tough position because it has never worked out well to say, no, he can't win in Paris. Uh, <laughs> some said it in 2020. Some said it in 2022. I said it in 2022. Luckily, not 2020. But I said it in 2022, and and it was wrong. So here we are again. Well, these are situations that make people wonder what the heck we even do for a living when we, because it's the realm of conjecture, right? It's pure speculation. And what do we know? And Rafa's body and how he feels. And right, okay, you're right. Because, hmm, okay, am I ready to play 21 sets of play court tennis? And of course, they can say, well, you don't know until you see. I mean, there's so many ways you can talk about it, you know, nine ways to Sunday. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure we will have a lot more time to to discuss it. It's gonna well, we hope we learn stuff. You know, are we going to see that? Uh, are we going to see a, a tweet from Rafa hitting balls? Is something going to emerge? Is it going to hear something? But even then, I guess the real thing will be, okay, what's he going to opt to say to the tournament when the gets down to making the draw and all of that other stuff? He's actually been hitting balls for a while. I know you were just saying that tongue in cheek, but it's uh, it's interesting. He he's really been on the court for a while. I just think he hasn't really been running much. So uh, there were he also reminds me like Rafa's not much of a social media guy. Like th there's jokes about how he posts upside down pictures sometimes when mm -hmm. he does his own posting. Um, but to me, what, what really struck me is these pictures that have been posted to social media of him working out his, at his academy. Um, that's what Roger was doing a lot leading up to his retirement. Um, and, and, you know, again, Roger didn't know that he was going to retire until, you know, a couple of months before he made the decision. So you could say, no, he was really trying to come back at that time. But the, the bottom line is, I don't think you can read anything into what's being put on social media other than he's on a court. Yeah, yeah. There are some some Roger vibes, but we don't need to get into it. I mean, it it is kind of how it is. But, you know, the whole like 
pushback, pushback, pushback thing is something that we saw with Federer. It doesn't mean the result is going to be the same. It doesn't mean it is the same, uh, but it, it does kind of bring you back to that and, and remind you of that. Uh, the last thing on Rafa that I want to say, I, I thought there were some positives in the social media post, Amy, as you tell us not to read in a social media. I'm just <laughs> going to do that. He he didn't say I'm too injured to play Rome or something like that or the pain or it's not better. He basically said that I I need to uh, re I forget the the word that I had translated, but basically I haven't trained enough. Like I just need to re uh, climatize myself. That wasn't the word uh, to to a point where I'm in good enough shape to play. Uh, the verbiage there. I thought was a little better. Like I'm not still injured, but I'm also not ready to play Rome. It's kind of how I read it. Yeah. So it, it's interesting. Like Gil, I think you said it's, or maybe Joel, it's kind of out of the question that he would take a wild card in one of these, but let's just say it wouldn't shock me if he did. I, I don't have any knowledge or anything on that, but um, I mean, he has, you said that this particular scenario has never happened before where he hasn't played a clay court tournament going into Roland Garros, but he has played some hard court tournaments where he wasn't a hundred percent going into the U S open. And, you know, it didn't necessarily work out well. I remember one that he lost to L Lloyd Harris, I think, or maybe it was Jack Sock. Um, but it, it, you know, it, I think we have to assume that if he can go, he will. Right. It depends. I mean, as long as we're in the realm of language and all this, define it, how we define can. And see, in my right. my my belief, though, again, I'm not a predictor, is that Rafa, to Rafa can means I've done some of the assigned homework, which means I've played some matches. Yeah, the, the potential of a wild card in Lyon or Geneva is the challenge with that. Be, wow, now you're committing yourself to possibly three straight weeks of competitive tennis. And might it be better to... Um, might it be better to just get to Roland Garros, practice, feel familiar, that clay, the familiar clay, all the things that constitute kind of, you know, what getting comfortable when you're, want, when you're planning to spend 18, 17, 18 days in one city for a slam you've won 14 times. You know, I don't see Nadal wanting to take, a, take the quick flight from, uh, from one of those tournaments to Paris and show up Monday morning. And, you know, that, that, that's, that's what you do when you surprise yourself. Got to the finals, Winston-Salem, get to the U.S. Open. <laughs> yeah. Carlos Alcaraz ending on him. He's uh 29 and two this year with four titles. And there have been health issues. Some, some of them small, I think an insignificant kind of intertwined here. The one at the beginning of the year was certainly significant. He beat Jan Lennard Struff uh, last week in the Madrid final in three sets, and, and nobody actually pushed him harder than Struff, arguably, uh, except for the first set he played in the tournament, uh, which was Emil Rusevori. But he handled Chorich and Hachinov and, and Zverev extremely easily. Uh, Dimitrov was straight sets as well. Joel, what do you make of the Alcaraz dominance right now? Like, what, what level is he on? Because... I, my big takeaway from this, the start of the year was, oh, you thought Alcaraz had this great uh, 2022. Well, he's actually better now. I think it's terrific. I think he is just in a great place. I think in a, in a way, as sometimes happens to players, 
missing a slam at a certain stage of the year as he did in Australia might prove beneficial over the long haul over the year. Um, he also, all the ways he's playing, I'm interested to see how people learn from that. I mean, have you ever, no one has ever seen a player this young, this complete. I was reeling through my way back machine and thinking about that. And he just, he has so many ways to go about playing. And then the other layer is his zest and love of just being on the court and, and playing. I mean, it's all a great, a great ride. There's nothing jaded about him. I mean, he is just like, you know, we, we talk, we've been, well, oh, well, big three. And now boom, here comes this guy. Who's just a, uh, lots of charisma and, and excitement. And so what I think we're all wanting to see, okay, Carlos and Novak, Carlos and Novak, when are you guys going to reconnect? That's kind of interesting, but also how are you going to proceed through his first, uh, you know, number one at Roland Garros and all that. So very, very exciting. I thought the Struff match with Alcaraz was super interesting because you see how someone who serves in volleys, not every point like Cressy, but often, um, how that type of player matches up against Alcaraz on this surface. And the answer is pretty doggone well. Uh, I couldn't believe how many balls were floated to Struff at the net. And um, yeah, he missed some volleys, but he also stuck a great many volleys. And uh, that is a possible key to unlock if you're Holger Runa or, or if you're Novak, um, who certainly knows how to serve in volley. We've seen him deploy it. Uh, so I thought that was super interesting. And it also, um, it takes away the drop shot pretty much, doesn't it? Because if you um, come into the net, then he's less likely to have the chance to deploy that drop shot. So that was my takeaway there. But just in terms of Carlos Alcaraz and who he is, um, this is going to be a fascinating upcoming stretch here, the next two tournaments. The other thing that's interesting, I wrote this the other day, I think he's a, he's 20 going to final. Usually a 20-year-old being in the finals of a Master 1000 would be, wow, a 20-year-old in the finals of a Master 1000. Oh, yeah, Carlos, yeah, okay, you're in another. You, you know, it was his 13th career final already. He's 20. And the big story was Struth, this lucky loser, getting into the finals. So it's almost like I'm taking for granted some of Alcaraz's skill and ability to do well. I mean, now he's 10 and three in finals. That's pretty good. And just <laughs> all the, all the data points he's racking up and all that, but also I think even more the diverse eclectic tennis he's playing and how that's creating all these questions and problem statements for other players to solve. I, I, I hope, I hope somewhere there's a, there's a 12 year old and his instructor and his parents who are seeing that. Yeah. And I'm confident they are, uh, Joel, you talked about kind of the pedigree already. Think about how big that U S open is when it comes to pressure coming into Roland Garros. If Alcaraz did not win the U S open, there would be a lot more on his shoulders. It's so big for him that he got that, that one instead of the zero, there's a huge difference between those two. Absolutely. So that's a factor. That's right. That he got his first. Right. And now, and now, you know, no one doubts he's going to get a second at some point <laughs> and on a, yeah. And Amy, great point about, about the serve and volley against Alcaraz. Uh, my read on it was the game plan was to let Struff have that play. Otherwise I think Alcaraz would have moved up, which he does have. He can return from, from that kind of close return position. 
uh, which he does on the quicker surfaces, there's probably a conversation, should we do that? And then you give Struff an opportunity to hit aces and to hit service winners. I think the decision was probably, nope, let's make more returns and make him execute the volleys. And as you said, a lot of the time he did. I think 73% uh, of serving volleys, Craig O'Shaughnessy uh, had this number, 73% serving volleys, Struff won, uh, which was mostly on first serve. So yeah, it did work, but Alcaraz still got it to not work enough. And I think you make a great point because I, I haven't looked at the stat sheet, but I just know from watching the match that Struff's aces were down in that match. Um, particularly, might have been the second, maybe the third set, where he just, his first ace came late, late, late in the set. So I think you make a good point that aces were taken from him. Yeah, he had two aces in the match heading into his final service game. He hit two in that last service game, which is going to boost his numbers a little bit. But yeah, way, way down. And uh, only 25% uh, unreturned serves for the match. So Alcaraz was making him play. And I think that was the the plan. Use the speed, use the shot making. Uh, it was also interesting. Struff, I think, is the most aggressive returner in men's tennis. And that put a lot of pressure on Alcaraz's serve. And that's kind of probably the biggest weakness still of, of Alcaraz right now. So I think Struff attacks that weakness well, because if you hit a bad serve against Struff, your punishment isn't, well, now I have to play a baseline rally. That's the punishment against most guys. The punishment is, well, the ball's crushed into the corner and I have no chance. I also think as you see, if players start to learn from the Alcaraz attack mode and you see Struff is doing that, I think the metrics and how we evaluate the ebb and flow of matches is very different when there's frequent net rushing very different set of evaluation tools about what that means. And it's, and it's not about risk. It's about the application of pressure and what that does and how that impacts everything from the service return to the break points to all these different ways. It's such a whole different dynamic of how, of how the match ebbs and flows. And so I think that's interesting. I mean, yeah, he makes 73% of those certain volley points, but how many are there? And do you make a good return? It's such a, it's a little more of a different kind of uh, poker game. When people are when people are coming to net frequently for both the net rusher and the defender, yeah, makes it fun for us, and it'll be very fun to watch Carlos Alcaraz play Rome for the first time in his career. We have Djokovic, we have Alcaraz, we don't have Nadal, unfortunately. Uh, we have a lot of players on the men's side who lost early in Madrid, so they should be ready to go here in Rome. We'll we'll see how that plays out. And uh, we'll have coverage, as always, after that. Remember, we're available on all podcast platforms. We appreciate it if you leave a rating and a review on Apple and Spotify. And if you're watching on YouTube, like, comment, and subscribe. We will see you next time on the next episode of 3.